Hi, Tamar. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat. Hi. It's it's <laughs> wonderful to talk to you. For sure. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? I grew up in Westchester, New York, which is about an hour and a half south of where I live now. Um, and because you were so generous in sending some of the questions that you wanted to ask me along beforehand, I thought about this one a lot because I realized that there are these, like there's a tendency to um, try to narrativize one's own life in a coherent way. And that every time I answer a question like this, I tell one version of, of, of the narrative. Um, and that it's actually not super coherent. Um, like I was remembering that I, I ate chocolate pop tarts for breakfast, um, which I've never put into any story of what I ate because I also had this kind of unbelievable gastronomical upbringing because my mom is an incredible cook. And it was like her, my mom was a developmental psychologist, but she worked in a really, really hard area. She worked at, um, Albert Einstein in the Bronx and specifically with uh, foster children with developmental disabilities and their foster parents. And it was just like, it was just hard and, and grueling. And she had terrible stories and she was really beaten down and she, and she took refuge in the kitchen. And so she cooked incredible food. Um, like I used to take, smoked mozzarella and eggplant and pesto sandwiches on focaccia to school and just like <laughs> it was not you know it wasn't standard she loved it and um and that was a big part of it but I hated food and she was a super young mother she had me when she was 24 she got married at 19 um and the fact that I hated food meant that if ever I wasn't eating she would like flip out and um try to find a way to compensate for that so it was like this funny mix of and my father was 11 years older than her and uh middle eastern so we had this like really amazing mediterranean homemade um diet where like there was hummus and chinat every meal and israeli pickles and olives and like this sort of very um you know like rooted and real culinary existence. And then also um, I was a picky, skinny kid. And so I had like every kind of sugary cereal you could possibly want. I had, I mean, maybe not Lucky Charms, but only because they weren't kosher. Um, but I had like uh, cinnamon toast crunch and the chocolate pop tarts was, a, that was like a several year long thing. And then Sometimes a chocolate Pop-Tart and Carnation instant breakfast in the hope <laughs> of like, you know, just like getting me to wear, you know, pants that wouldn't fall down and stuff like that. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was like a mix of hyper processed, just anything that a kid would eat and, um, you know, like the Mediterranean diet before that was even, I mean, I'm sure it was a thing, but certainly wasn't going on in, in a lot of my friends' houses. Right, right. And I mean, that's so interesting, because obviously, the next question is that you were an editor at Harper's before you turned to food. And now that I know you didn't like to eat as a kid, it's especially interesting, I guess, to understand how this 
that you made this move in your in your career. So how did that switch happen? Um, well, it's that was another it's another thing where I think I've tended to narrativize it one way and it um, mm-hmm. is, is other ways, too, because when I I was at, I was an editor at Harper's for. I guess three years and I had and during that time I developed a, just a real like a full a full passion for cooking. I was just totally um I I, I was in love. I loved uh reading food magazines and I loved, you know, going to the Chelsea market and buying Italian olive oil and I loved the farmers market and I loved learning about where um about food sourcing and about mm-hmm. um organic and biodynamic farming and um I but I had kind of a false start with food because I got I was really really in love with it like like the way you fall in love with a human um mm-hmm. and then I thought well you know I was so young I was like 22 22, I think, when I got to Harper's and I just got really lucky and ended up kind of like rising there. So I was a, you know, a full editor, but I was like, you know, 23, 24, 25, really very kind of early um, in my grown up life. And I decided that I wanted to go to see if I, I like decided to give myself this test where in order to test my, my love of cooking, I would get Gabrielle Hamilton to let me work at Prune on the weekends, Mm -hmm. but not quit my job as an editor. And that that was just going to like, that that was going to answer the question. Um, (laughs) Which is a super, like, it's a naive and charming and bold thing to do now that I think about it. Um, But uh, she had, she said, like, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And I don't think you're going to really learn anything this way. And um and then I was super persistent. And there's this wonderful story that I've told a billion times where finally I, she kept on like saying no or no, it was, I hadn't actually talked to her yet. I was ta- I would go to prune at lunchtime and talk to people who were working in there. And they were like, she's not here. She's not here. And then um, her pastry chef, like the third time I went, her pastry chef was like, well, if you're an editor, why don't you write her a letter? Cause she's a mm-hmm. writer. Um, it was a long time before um, Gabrielle started, really started her writing career. And so I wrote her a letter and she actually called me. And when I got back to my office at Harper's, there was a voicemail for me saying like, you can come in. And so I ended up um, somehow convincing her and I would work, I worked brunch there, which was terrifying Right. Um, on Saturdays for three months. And I never told anybody at Harper's um but it it went okay I mean it it sometimes didn't go okay she pulled me Mm -hmm. off the line once I was like burning hundreds of dollars worth of food and you know it wasn't it it wasn't really smooth or effortless but it was happening um but then I quit after three months I was like I can't I'm like not I at that point really wanted to like I was feeling quite ambitious and I felt like I needed to work weekends at Harper's too, because Mm -hmm. I wanted to like rise and excel. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was like between two worlds. And she was like, great, you should definitely not be a cook, like go back to Harper's. And then 
I quit Harper's not that long after that, like maybe six months or a year. Um, but I didn't quit to cook. I actually quit when I did quit. I um, quit because I thought I wanted to go to law school. I felt like I was, it was like part of wanting to cook was that I wanted to not be sitting in this chair so far away from life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it was just so removed. And Harper's especially was so removed on so many levels. I just felt like my heart was turning black. And so somehow like the fact that I wanted to cook and the fact that I wanted to go to law school seemed very connected. So I studied for, I quit Harper's, studied for the LSAT. And while I was studying for the LSAT, I worked as a personal chef and a research assistant for Dan Barber. And then when I ended up becoming a real full-time cook, I was supposed to be going to law school. I deferred for a year um, and I was going for immigration law. So I was, I had was sort of on the fence about Georgetown versus Michigan versus Chicago. And I ended up deferring from Georgetown. Um, and then during that year of deferral, I uh, just became, I, I, I had to choose um, and cooking sort of had me in its grips. So that's the super long and, but like totally fragmented story. Right, right, right. And I mean, that's so fascinating. And so when did you decide to start writing about food? I tried to write about food while I was an editor at Harper's, but I was too scared to do it. Um, I wrote one piece and I showed it to the deputy editor and he said, um, well, what I've learned from this is that you can write, but you would have to rewrite this entire thing. Um, <laughs> It's not, it has to be rewritten. And I like that was, it took me years to just get it together to do that. And the idea of rewriting it was too overwhelming. Um, so then I guess it just got, I was just scared. I think I always wanted probably to do it, but it was so, it was like beyond, it was beyond terrifying. Nothing else was as scary as the idea of writing or writing about food. And in particular, um, writing about food because it it felt so frivolous. Like the main reason that I didn't just write about food from the beginning was because it seemed frivolous beyond anything else I was doing. Like Harper's had, although it was obviously kind of removed and intellectual uh, and not like service oriented, um, you know, the observations in it were valuable. And cooking has always seemed useful to me because you're literally feeding people and giving them joy and obviously immigration law is um is important if you're on the right side of it um but the idea of like I it was I was just really like I was scared and ashamed of the frivolity of it um and so it just it, I think I always wanted to do it it just took uh it took me decades really to um to let myself do it from a right. combination of paralysis and moral moral paralysis and uh and uh I don't know what the other kind would be personal paralysis self-confidence right. paralysis right well how did you Demic figure out paralysis? a way <laughs> how did you figure out a way to write about food in a way that made it not frivolous for you um well it was it was because of the thing that I, I started writing about it 
um, I started writing a few like free pieces for this San Francisco. Um, I was living in San Francisco because I was cooking mm -hmm. at Chez Panisse. And my friend Sasha had a zine called Meat Paper. And I was I, really- I've heard about involved. this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was involved in the meat world because I actually started the first meat CSA in the country back then because it was San Francisco like you could do anything it was kind of like mm -hmm. a you literally could just like decide you wanted to do something and it started happening so I was spending all of my time buying whole animals and having them broken up and then distributing them according to this like crazy sort of non-mathematical but like butchery algorithm that I had worked out <laughs> and so because of that I was like in the meat world and I started writing pieces for meat paper and they're really really like turgid and like so overwrought but that it was like a beginning and then I wrote one or two pieces for civil eats which were also pretty bad but it was mm -hmm. like just writing for these local these local places mostly from my perspective as mm -hmm. a um you know meat activist um and then I was having drinks with a friend of Alice Waters's uh, who, wait what's her name Katrina Katrina who was like one of the founders of Wired magazine or maybe one of the first editors I don't know she's like a brilliant sort of poly polymath and she, we were having uh martinis and she was like I've always wanted to write how to cook a wolf for today and I like almost fell off my chair because <laughs> I was like but that's my life's work. Like, that's what I am put on this earth to do. I'm like, I was born to do that. Um, and then I said, why don't we do it together? Um, and she said, great. And we were going to do it by sending stuff back and forth. And then it was like, I got tricked into it. I mean, not, she didn't mean to, but um, I just kept on sending her things mm -hmm. and she wasn't sending anything back, but she was sending me really good edits. Like I remember one of them, she said, um, cool. Yeah. This seems digressive throughout. And I was like, wow, wow, wow. Um, but then because it was like so offline and just not part of anything, um, I was able to, to write because I was just writing her emails. Right. And then after like a month of that, she said, you know, I'm not doing any work on this, but you like basically just wrote a book proposal. So why mm -hmm. don't you just go with it? So that was like my, you know, 20 year long way of backing into the thing that I had wanted to do forever. Right, right. And so your that book, which I, I'm assuming became an everlasting meal, um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. was yeah, was about making cooking seem, you know, simple rather than complex. And you told the New Yorker when it came out, um, one way we get back to the stove is to treat food less fetishistically. And you know, do you think that that has happened? It, it's been ten years since the book came out. Um, is food being treated less fetishistically, but in the in the right way, in your perspective? No, 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 <laughs> no. nothing. I mean. Like, yeah. So, I mean, also that you, I didn't even answer your question, but so I, I thought that an everlasting meal didn't feel frivolous to me. I was like, it felt like, it felt like good work, you know? So right. that was why, that's how I was able to do it was that I was like, this is good work. 
on this planet. And that's what I want to do. Um, no, it's gotten more and more fetishistic. I can't, I, I have had so many times of like real, I don't know, beyond depression about it. Like sent like real senses that I, I haven't done anything. And that in general, this, the whole field is like at a point where I can't even reach it and shouldn't try and should just find other things to do with myself to make money because I like that was before Instagram. And mm -hmm. I, um, I mean, you know, with a, with obviously a, a little bit of a parenthesis around, um, pandemic thinking about food and pandemic experiences of food and a parenthesis around, you know, growing awareness of the, uh, of the longtime erasure of traditional and indigenous and black mm -hmm. food pathways. Um, but for the most part, over the last 10 years, uh, food has gone on being fetishized and become more and more and more fetishized and entire personalities have been um, built on, you know, co-opting uh, food personalities, co-opting traditional dishes. And um, no, I found it, I thought, like I was so naive, I thought I could write a book and obviously not that many people read it. So like maybe, maybe you could write a book and like every single person could read it and, and that could be all you had to say on it. But I was just, I really thought I was so innocent. I was like, I'll just write this book and then everyone will have it. And then everyone can just do the stuff in it. And they'll be totally untethered from all of these awful systems. And we can like live better lives and be kinder <laughs> to each other. But, but that was, that was not true. Well, I mean, how do you define fetishistically? Because I think, I mean, in my perspective, people think that those who kind of care about food and where it comes from and like would it be a person who joined a meat CSA are that is perceived as as fetishistic rather than you know people who are um, focused on consumption or or the way something looks on a plate um, so how do you define fet fetishistic in food you know I would like to look up what the word actually means I think it comes <laughs> from like you know the answer no I, I don't I don't I think it comes from like charm, like lucky charm. Uh -huh. I don't know like what it, I'm going to look it up while we talk because I have this really yeah. amazing dictionary. Um, that was just the sound of it. It's really old. So it has to be in this special box. So it always sounds like <laughs> Um, I, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that some people could join a meat CSA for out of a sense of um, fetishizing food, Fetish. but I, that right. is not at all how I interpreted it. I, I, you know, I think that food has to be, I mean, some people would say that like Italians fetishize food. Um, right. But it seems more like, I mean, when we eat, we're like, I think Wendell Berry is the, I, I forget who said it, but like that when we eat, we're, you know, we're consuming existence We're we are, we're mm -hmm. killing every time we eat, there is a degree of, um, uh, of kind of like, you know, the magical and the sort of um, the mystical and the horrible about all of it. And it should be, it should be treated like that. Right. Um, uh, but so I guess in my, is it not even in here? Fetishism, fetishistic. 
Um, uh, oh yeah, I'm right. Fetish. Artificial sorcery charm made by art artificial factitious. Material objects opposed among certain tribes to represent in such a way or be so connected with a supernatural being. Isn't that weird? Yeah. That's where <laughs> because that's not how we um, use it now. Yeah. I know. But like I think that to me it was the the turning of something that should be um sort of personal and um and simple and human and sensual into this level it, into this this sorry not level but this system of um of of capitalistic um like symbols so like right. that everything seemed attached to um like whether you could get it and like kind of cons like having the like having the experience and that reflecting on you and like consuming it seemed very detached from actual personal experiences and I guess I thought I've I've thought of like the the way um certain personalities get fetishized and turned mm -hmm. into like a symbol of your own value or what you are rich enough to have access to and the way there's like this um and the way certain objects you know that if you have a certain kind of pan it means you're a certain kind of a serious cook and um mm -hmm. like this this sort of identifying it with a um projection of yourself as opposed mm -hmm. to experiencing it is how i guess i thought very very vaguely of fetishization right no and that's it's so true that that continues and kind of proliferates and maybe is is more true now as as you said in now that instagram exists and i you know i struggle with this of course of like how much i'm performing a personality for other people um around food that is bad <laughs> or um <laughs> you know is is just yeah it's just part like, of it is bad the fact of performing it is bad or the personality you're you're performing? I mean, I don't think, I hope the personality isn't bad, but I, I think the fact of performing it is, is bad and inauthentic. And, and I'm trying to figure out a new way of, of, uh, doing that, I think, um, so that it's not, it doesn't yeah. feel bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's funny because I, you know, Instagram, I mean, not, this is an interview of you, but to, you know, Instagram reminds me of, when like what I would post a couple of years ago and like it was you know different from what I would post now um in terms of like how like thought out it would have been you know I, I didn't think about it as much back then <laughs> as I do now yeah. Um, yeah. which yeah. I don't like but at the same time it's hard to get back to being having it be more natural because you feel like now you're plotting it sort of because you're you're plotting it in a maybe strategic way and then it felt more um you weren't so strategic no absolutely yeah um yeah. but i i mean i also have like way more followers now so it's this kind of necessity of not being as personal i suppose um mm -hmm. which is just a weird thing to happen like the more popular your work becomes like the less you can actually be yourself um for people i guess uh 
but maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe it's just a, yeah, I don't know if it is or not. It's definitely something that I have been thinking about because I, um, never, I was never on Instagram and mm -hmm. then, and I resisted it during the writing and publication of my second book. Um, and then I'm, and I'm working on a third book right now. And I have like, after hearing people say for 10 years, you have to engage uh, <laughs> with people on social media. I, I finally started um, posting stuff mm -hmm. on social media and it's been, or on, on Instagram. I've always been, I mean, Twitter, I always am just like, I'm just, you know, upset about the state of the world and and, right. and nobody really knows what I say, and, but it's different than when you're <laughs> pictures of food. Right. Um, but I have been thinking a lot about it because I've been thinking about the way um, the way cultivated personalities actually often have this seem to have a real some some reckoning happens when people mm -hmm. <laughs> realize how cultivated they've been and yeah. how there's a degree to which kind of um there are individuals who are really um, who are extroverts and who benefit from a kind of like open exchange, like who actually, it doesn't cost them. Like it costs me right. to share actual mm -hmm. things with people. And I, I find, I find it all very costly. Anything that isn't just like my actual life is costly. Right. Me. I don't. Um, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's hard. Um, right. But there are people who like really thrive, I think, through an honesty that is nourishing to them, that it's interesting that the, it is a medium that can bring out, you know, a kind of like this, that there, there is a channel on which like lots of people can talk to one person with some amount of clarity and honesty, but I don't think very many people are good at that. And so right. it's just like hijinks and sue. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, how has being on Instagram been? I mean, did you get on it because of, you know, the the publishing ecosystem kind of forcing your hand? Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> I mean, not not force my hand, but like realistically, I need people to be conscious of right. um my next book because yeah. my second book, I really didn't do anything to promote and I think um I also made a lot of assumptions about like what people needed and wanted in a mm -hmm. book and it really did it sell and that um that stinks because this is how I make money right. and so um and I there are all of these things that I have not done and I'm not a very visible I'm just not a very visible person. I'm just, and I never tried to be or wanted to be. I just had this idea that I could like write the books that I wanted to write. And they weren't like, they weren't um, platforms. I didn't mm -hmm. want a platform. I just wanted to go on writing books. Uh, but that's, I mean, I think that probably works for a novelist, but it doesn't work for like a slow writing, hamstrung, often paralyzed, <laughs> like, you know, food writer. Um, so it, it, I did join it in the hopes of, um, of it making more people excited about 
my next book because I uh, need people to buy it. <laughs> right, right. No, it's such a an odd uh, situation to be in. Yeah, and I, I have a friend who um, writes cookbooks and also like does not want to be on social media and just is in this situation of, you know, where does that leave her, you know, uh, in terms of whether her books will actually sell. And it, it's so strange that basically it seems like social media is such a massive part of that in a way that maybe it wasn't before. Uh, and it, it is really, it's costly for people who, who don't have a natural inclination toward it. And it's, it's not, you know, a fair situation. Um, but who knows how that. Tell her she can tell me if she needs to commiserate. <laughs> to listen and totally understand. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a very strange position. I feel really, you know, I feel, you know, very sympathetic toward it. Um, even though my situation is like basically the opposite situation. Um, but you're, you know, you're also now a contributing editor at Vogue and you've been there for a while. You know, how, how do you decide which food subjects you cover for that kind of audience, like the more, a more fashion audience? I don't think anybody reads my Vogue stories. <laughs> I've, been, um, I've been in doctor's offices. I mean, not in the last year, but I think I've been writing for, I've, I've been with Vogue or writing for them for like five or six years, I think mm -hmm. maybe a long time. Um, and I've been, all of my doctors have always been on the Upper East Side because um, my uncle is affiliated with Lenox Hill on the Upper East Side. So I have like lots of doctors waiting room experiences on the Upper East Side and all of them have Vogue in them. And I, I mean, it probably hasn't been like five times, but I have seen at least twice people like thumbing through Vogue, stopping. I've, oh, I've seen this happen in a hair salon too. Like, stopping you know for the amount of time you do when you're reading vogue on the pages and just like yeah, blah 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 twelve hundred dollars da, 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 and then get to the foods thing and just like go right past it like <laughs> nothing so i right. don't think i think there are like five people who actually read them and i think i know those five people and they write me and they're like i love the vogue story um <laughs> but uh so i don't it that's not really there, it's more like there are elements that need to be in a Vogue story, but mm -hmm. I have always chosen what I'm going to write about for them um, based on what I wanted to spend my time right. finding out about for the most yeah. part. So like, weirdly, I mean, I've like, I've only done two or three profiles for them, but they were of Questlove and Enrique Alvera. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I've written about like sardines, broth, food scraps. Like it's very, um, and so, for, to some degree you get like, because it's Vogue and there is a tongue in cheek quality to a lot of their photography, certainly like a lot of their art and, and in general, it's, it's, it's a lot of smart, mostly ladies, Mm -hmm. sitting around a room so like you know kind of the weirder something is often the more attractive it is there um right but I've always that has always been a place where where my choices have I mean they haven't been immoral but there have been certain pieces that have been amoral like I did write about 
learning how to make um milfoy which is like who cares right um <laughs> but i am terrified i'm well post pandemic i'm not terrified of baking but i used to be terrified of baking so it was just like a you know stressful and funny experience but a lot of the stuff that i've written for them has been about um you know ecology and environmental responsibility and using all of stuff and if a trend shows up that happens to allow me to like talk about you know like I just got to write a piece about oh well whatever it's coming out there's a piece in April that sort of could have been a trend piece but actually is about how it's not a trend you know so I think um because nobody reads it uh it's kind of been like the secret place where I get to write about things that are interesting to me. Right, right, right. And, you know, because you're, you know, writing mostly for Vogue and you're writing cookbooks and, and you know, you don't necessarily have to kind of wade into the the more food media sector, I suppose. But, you know, like how and yeah, and you, you've mostly written for non-food publications um, from what I yeah. can tell. Yeah. And yeah. so how do you perceive those those magazines and how have how have you kind of negotiated your place in that ecosystem or, or lack of place in it? You know, I mean, it's much more like lack of place, right? Like right. I just, I, I, I don't, I, it's certainly something I've been, this is certainly something I've been um, like very plagued by recently, but like by, by remaining outside of an ecosystem that I really, uh, didn't like, I mm -hmm. may have rendered myself entirely irrelevant. Um, <laughs> and that is just in terms of like, you know, self, self image and, and self confidence and earning potential that mm -hmm. I feel a little bit like that might be coming home to roost. Um, that is not the right way to use that. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you actually yeah. say that, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that the, I think, I've, I've, I've stayed outside of the food, food publication ecosystem because I don't, I've never liked it. So mm -hmm. like when I first moved back to New York and I was writing an everlasting meal and right, right after it came out, I um, had a personal, a, um, like a, a, a modus operandum, I guess, a kind of like a, a principle, which was anything that paid me a thousand dollars or more, I would write. That was like, that way I didn't have to think too carefully about it. I was just mm -hmm. like, I can't afford to turn down something that is a thousand dollars or there's less than a thousand dollars. But then um, I got, I had a column in the Times Magazine for like a year, a year and a half. And then I, 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 I was feeling overwhelmed with that and Vogue and books. And so I chose just Vogue, but I was able to not just change that and mm -hmm. Not, I didn't use that rule anymore. And I didn't want to write for, you know, I don't really like food publications very much. I, I mean, I love Whetstone. I think it's mm -hmm. gorgeous. Um, I'm so excited about uh, For the Culture. Um, there, you know, a billion years ago in like the year 2000, I loved Sever. Mm -hmm. um, Me too. <laughs> but I didn't, I've never really been into the other stuff. So I haven't navigated it probably great to my own detriment professionally. Um, I read, I was reading, I guess, probably via Twitter, um, this 
Bennett's interview and statement that Food and Wine did with the chefs of a restaurant called Masala y Maiz in Mexico mm-hmm. City, um, that I thought was it was it was a great interview and um and I loved the things that the two chefs said and one of the chefs whose name I now forget uh, but it's it's a couple of mm-hmm. and um one of the two chefs said like you know food media is I'm totally paraphrasing but he said right. food media is processing um all of these all of this food tradition and all of this food history for a general audience like and so there is a level of processing that you have Mm -hmm. to think about like it's taking something and what i i don't think he used the word processing but as i was reading it i thought of like taking a potato and turning it into a pringle you know (laughs) and i think like i would rather it be a potato and i think i've i've always felt a little bit like i don't what are we doing here like you end up with all of this all these side effects and like in recent years a lot of it gets like everybody's sticking their foot in their mouths but actually people have always been sticking their foot in their their feet their foot their feet in their mouths with like having a white guy write about how you eat pho and mm-hmm. you know putting hot sauce on on um, mole which is what happened with the food and wine thing like right. i'm not totally comfortable with that with that processing i think it's it's i i have I have certainly been part of it. I don't mean that I'm like mm-hmm. somehow above or outside of like having done it, but I think there's, I think I have a level of um, discomfort with it as a way of like interacting with the, with the foods and with the traditions. And I don't take a ton of pleasure in it. I think it tends to like cut a lot of important people and things out and mm-hmm. it's a shitty way of making money and a shitty system right no and I it was interesting because that interview it didn't really start to make the rounds on Twitter except when Soleil Ho shared it and but I had seen it being shared a lot on Instagram and it was interesting to me that I I didn't see the writers from Food and Wine sharing it and that it's been interesting to me to watch food media sort of perform its own you know quote-unquote reckoning um and kind of not really interrogate itself um you know to kind of treat things as isolated incidents and not as kind of a pattern of behavior as you explain of of taking things and and kind of dumbing them down um mm-hmm. and, and making them you know palatable to to the the american audience um yeah it's really it's been an interesting moment i suppose but um very alienating one i i think for for anyone who's thought of these things before now you always seem like you think there is some, some, I don't know if hope is the right word, but like <laughs> that you could envision a food media ecosystem that is less um, extractive. Do you? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think, you know, as you mentioned Whetstone, and I think that's a great example of it. And I think that, I mean, I guess, you know, I've been writing about it in my newsletter, you know. Uh, with the idea of like translation and and kind of approaching a food magazine in the way that some art magazines approach art, not to say that they're perfect, but to say that you know they are taking perspectives from 
the places of origin and translating them into English, not translating them for the audience, but simply translating them into a, a legible language for the audience, you know, and I think that that's a really that is, there's so much potential there. Um, and now I've seen a little bit of translation now happening more, but it's mostly just translating um, words into Spanish for, for that audience, which is, you know, that's a start. But <laughs> I think uh-huh. that the global perspective of a magazine like Whetstone um, is extremely, you know, non-extractive. And I think that in independent publishing, we're seeing models. But I, I mean, I, of course, I would like to see, you know, Bon Appetit, you know, <laughs> take, because it has such a huge audience, like, you know, uh, take kind of that perspective, but I don't know how it would work with its voice because, you know, it's a bit frivolous um, in, in tone. Um, and I don't know how it would work to not be frivolous. <laughs> um, <but> yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. like, yeah, how, how do you do a, a Bon Appetit without being frivolous when its whole thing is is being frivolous? Um, I don't know. I'm it, So, you know, they took away gourmet to make to just have Bon Appetit and now it's like, you know, this is what we're left with. And this is, you know, the most um, widely read food magazine in the United States. So, you know, you can't completely ignore what they do, but it's, it's really terrifying to see what that is (laughs) and what it, what kind of influence it has, you know? Um, So yeah, it's, I am, I do have hope though, that, that things could change, but I do think that, you know, for that to happen, like I was saying, like when you have someone, like when you have the food and wine situation where you're going to do an interview to talk about how they got this wrong, or you have like Grub Street writing about the abuse at Mission Chinese food, mm-hmm. you need to take more of a look at the whole process that has created this moment um, in terms of how the media has been culpable in, in doing, in, in contributing to these things. And and I think not having that kind of media culpability is, is where, you know, things are going to just keep being wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess the you know you do. I, I've been curious and 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 watching and reflecting on my reactions to things over over you know this sort of. I don't know what the right word is. I mean, you said reckoning, so let's do like reckoning in quotes. But um, but you know, I do wonder. Like, I get this image of, um, of kind of people, people being I don't know the the suits upstairs going like. Like, have we, have we slapped ourselves on the hand sharply enough? Like, can we now, are we forgiven? You know, this sort of like, I think that they're, they're, it's not that I don't have hope, but I do wonder whether there's a little bit of an un, like an, an irresolvable, like power issue where the, I feel like the people in charge want to be forgiven by the communities that they have never written for or right. given any power. I don't know how you as a person in power get forgiven by people you've never given power to. I don't know what this right. like, I don't, I wish I were a philosopher. So I had models <laughs> for like how this could like, I don't know what the catharsis and shift would be. Um, and I, again, I don't mean to like make myself not part of this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white writer who's had tons of opportunities and I, I, uh, I've never run a magazine, but I can't, you know, I, I don't mean that I'm excluded from it. Um, but I, I do wonder how it, I don't know any models for how it happens. 
Right. Neither do I. <laughs> I mean, I have ideas, of course, but, you know, no one's going to put me in charge of a magazine. Um, <laughs> but um, for you, is cooking a political act? Of course. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's always, it, every, it is for everybody. Like, I, it's, um, I, again, stupidly really thought that um, when I wrote An Everlasting Meal, I was providing people a tool for um, self-sufficiency and sovereignty and a way of um, becoming less reliant on the, the food industry and um, the, you know, the mendacity of our um, corporate industrial food culture. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not that easy, but um, I, I continue to believe that, uh, the more skill people have in their kitchens, the less reliant on, on, um, corporate America, corporate, uh, global North we are. I think that's like actually pretty common sense. Um, mm -hmm. when we don't need them anymore, then we have more power and I've always felt like the means of production in our hands um, is a vital shift. Um, I don't think it can happen super usefully independent of structural change. You know, our mm -hmm. agricultural system that, that demands huge surpluses is super, is, is, has a bigger impact than whether or not you make your own flipping pizza dough. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it's absolutely political and um, for, for a hundred thousand reasons, but one of them is knowing how to cook uh, can, is, is, is actually liberating, can, can make you less dependent on all the other stuff. And, um, and I think that for so many, um, in all of these beautiful ways, for so many cultures um a an ability to um you know persist i'm just i'm thinking of you know cultures where they're where, where like syrian food um and uh that really refuge you know a lot of refugee populations where like when you're unlanded like and the, the, the thing that you are able to keep are tastes and smells and um, all of that, and that eventually the hope is to have land again, and that as soon as one does, one would plant the things whose tastes and smells one remembers. I mean, that is like the most fundamentally political thing, right? What we're what we want when we want land is to grow our food. Um, so I, yeah, and I think maybe that's part of why I've, I, you know, have felt so like like there was so much discordance between. Um, what between the inherently political nature of food and stuff like um uh, you know unicorn ice cream <laughs> trend you know just like because right. that's a political statement too but it's always felt like i don't know is it just saying fuck you kind mm -hmm. of you know i i i um and also i i i always keep wendell berry somewhere on my desk and there's one part where he writes about how like the impulse of charity is 
like it sure it might come from some idea of like doing good being divine but that actually you can't be good you can't do charity unless you have skills like you have to be able to be a good neighbor and um cooking is like you know one of the simplest ones like i'm not a good builder i'd like to be a good builder i'm getting a little bit closer but um you know that like you you have to be able to do stuff in order to be a good community member and you have to be a good community member in order to be able to um do anything on a larger stage right well thank you so much for taking the time you're welcome sorry to end it so happy no no it's good (laughs) no i love it thank you you're welcome good to talk